0: I was joking yesterday that I went to bed in an institutionally racist country and apparently woke up in a beacon of equality without having noticed.
1: Welcome to Surviving Society
0: with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis,
1: executively produced by Georgia Foriado. Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
0: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Surviving Society Alternative to Woman's Hour. I am really excited today to have two guests. Rafif Ziada, who is a Palestinian spoken word artist and human rights activist. Rafif is a lecturer in Comparative Politics of the Middle East and is widely published, broadly concerned with the political economy of war, humanitarianism, racism and the security state. Rafif is also a long-term member of the Palestinian BDS National Committee and founding member of the International Israeli Apartheid Week. She works as campaigns coordinator at War on Want and a number of Palestinian refugee rights and anti-poverty campaigns. Then next up, we have Brenna Bandar. Brenna is author of The Colonial Lives of Property, an amazing book. Um, She is co-editor of Plastic Materialities. She's a critical legal scholar and has been active for many, many, many years in political grassroots organizing and Brenna and I actually became friends through organizing as well so this is a very exciting podcast for me personally to be joined with both of you we're going to be talking about this incredible edited collection Revolutionary Feminisms thank you both so much for joining me today thanks thanks for having us yeah
0: thanks very much for having this conversation
1: (laughs) Rafif it would be really good if you could explain to the listeners how you came to be writing this book and your background in revolutionary feminisms.
0: Thank you. This is one of those tough questions to to answer because the book is really a culmination of the many exiles I have lived through, the countries that I've had to live in, get deported to, or be forced to stay in for immigration reasons, one way or another. So, Revolutionary Feminisms is a set of interviews with activist scholars or militant scholars um, who are revolutionary feminists. A lot of them are people who have inspired me greatly. I should say, people who helped me survive academia. Um, academia which is not always the most hospitable place to women of color I always felt very alienated within that kind of setting so some of the people we interview like Angela Davis, Himani Banerjee, both mentors and companions as I navigated my way through through refugee status but also through academia they had taught me so much and really helped me to survive and in many ways um we would be having conversations and going to conferences in the context of having moved to the uk where i felt there was a bit of historical amnesia around the role of many scholars of of color and specifically revolutionary feminists who had really advanced our thinking around feminism, around racism, but also around class struggle. There was a historical amnesia around it, I think is the best way I have of saying it. So I I really felt compelled to, you know, bring these stories of these incredible activists more to light and to engage them and have these conversations. And, And we very much, in thinking through how to write the book, decided to do it in the form of conversations. In academia, we're very much pushed to always do individualized work, to say, I had this idea just on my own. No one ever helped me to develop it. And here we were doing exactly the opposite. We were saying we all build on each other. There's very wide shoulders that we stand on and we want to be having these conversations. It, it allowed us time for reflection um, and f- also for people to reflect on the current moment when we were doing the interviews. Um, and that's in a nutshell how I got to it
1: the actual book being interviews. There's something about this form and this writing style, which I think created conversations amongst some of the scholars within this book that I feel like I've not read in this way before. As in, obviously we're talking about many of their politics within this book but I feel like reading it in this way it was quite transformative for me actually reading it because again like I'm not I'm not reading stuff that they haven't not said in in a sort of academic text or in a leaflet or in a book but in a interview style it's almost like you get something more from their from their scholarship and their political thinking
0: I mean that's absolutely how I felt as we were going through it is you're able to connect lived experience you're able and also most of the scholars we've interviewed are like activists in their own right and their activism really inflected their academic work and you don't get that when you just read an academic book so having that reflection on people's personal histories um how they radicalized and then how that inflected their academic work was was really something and I think that's why it's I'd love for more people to read the book to kind of get that more personal touch to scholars they read in classrooms
1: this book, in particular, for me, is the most important book that's come out in the past few years. And I don't say that lightly. The conversations, the things that are discussed, the types of critiques, solidarity building, and discussions about the past and how it relates to the present, I think are fundamental for some of the big questions, but also local questions we're thinking about right now. So I just want to make that point clear that listeners, if you're listening, you need to get this book. Brenna, please could you also now tell us a bit about how you came to be part of revolutionary feminisms? Uh,
2: well, I think just to add to what Rafif said, obviously my personal trajectory's been, you know, quite radically different from from Rafif's. At the same time, we have a shared political and intellectual ground from which we think and act. For me, the different feminisms that we explore in the book have also been completely formative of my own scholarly work and also you know activism and and I mean we can call it activism but I also think sometimes you know the things I do I feel like well it's just a part of being a kind of responsible human being (laughs) an engaged human politically engaged person but in any case yeah so these feminisms are ones that have just you know also been a real lifeline at different at different times and the book emerges from a lot of conversations that Rafif and I had been having since getting to know each other i think it it first emerged out of a a frustration with what Rafif referred to as a kind of amnesia about all of the thinking and the organizing that is really the you know the the groundwork—it's the grounding upon which, you know, the, the movements that we see in our contemporary moment, you know, they're they're built on all of this rich work and and labor and both intellectual and then you know all of the—I mean, not to make these problematic divisions, but all of the praxis, you know, uh, the work of this and this praxis that these scholars uh, militant. Scholars, as Ruthie would call them, you know, um, have engaged, and so the book was is really, you know, meant to bring to audiences who might be coming into politics now, thinking about concepts like intersectionality, or thinking about Marxism, or thinking about these kinds of things to to introduce them to to this work you know how we ended up
1: doing the book one of the things that comes through within almost within all the interviews it's looking at the history of these revolutionary feminisms and their grounding in political organizing and from decades and decades ago and sort of retrieving that history. But also it does such a good job thinking about that history as being complicated, but also one of many successes. I think it's really hard to get that across right now within our current discourse, particularly on the left, because as you say, like there's been a lot of amnesia. I've spoken quite openly, on the podcast about how I can be very much um, a contributor to some presentist conversations and I always need to do better. But to sort of bring it back to these histories of solidarity building, global solidarity building, but also local solidarity building in a way that addresses those the nuances and the particularities of that time. Don't think there's many scholars that are able to do that. So I just want to, as we do on this podcast, big you up for doing that. It's a real craft and skill to be able to do that because there are people that have different positions and feel certain ways about particular movements particular types of feminisms but actually like you're kind of listening to those people whilst also saying, but actually, this is what was happening. Slightly abstract, but I'm basically making a point about the, how important the histories are within this, but they're critical histories. And there are certainly some things that come through amongst the feminists that are talking about, or the activists, the militant feminist activists that are talking about some of the issues that were happening at the time and sort of how pertinent that is for our current um, conjuncture. just want to read something from your introduction. The introduction to this book is absolutely phenomenal. It's on page 23 of the introduction. You're talking about the coalitions of Black and Asian women organizing in the 70s and 80s. And there's a really powerful paragraph This multi-scale organising was vital to building coalitions between Black and South Asian feminists, coalitions that worked to tackle state-sponsored racism and sexism while openly discussing how communities and individuals are differentially racialised. This required very patient and conscientious work to study how class, race and gender operate in specific historical conjunctures. The analytic link they drew between class and race helped to articulate an inclusive and militant black political identity. As we have noted, there were tensions and contradictions in this form of coalition politics, yet it remains an important moment that foregrounded political unity that paragraph in itself just literally deals with so many of the kind of like surface level debates that we kind of have at the moment and we we do we talk about these issues on this podcast like we don't shy away from them we really try our best to sort of think about the nuances within within all these matters and how difference is understood and or received on the left but that paragraph I think it's just it's shut it shut me up now I'm like right let me just re- go back to my revolutionary feminism's introduction just to remind me about what is actually happening what was happening and what is at stake
2: you know we're we're both nodding our heads vigorously I guess <laughs> I'm really glad that you that you read that paragraph out because um we wrote the introduction well it's been at least a year and a half I guess since we wrote it and this, the, the kind of work that you you just described, so this kind of work that was really a core part of anti-racist feminist organizing, you know, through the 70s and 80s, and of course onwards after that, all the way through up until now. I, I mean, I would say that I don't know how core that kind of thinking is to at least some of the academic discourses around um, anti-racism that we see today. One can often feel like one's in a quite a small minority now, when that's the approach that one takes to their anti-racist politics. The idea of really trying to understand structural racism through a feminist framework, which requires us to think about how, you know, race is something that is continually being fabricated, expressed through gender and class and that, you know, racist discourses and racist formations shift and move and that the terms and the and the uh, names that we use to describe racism that they signify different things at different in different moments of time. And I think that, that the attention to the nuances of how racism operates, sometimes it can feel these days, I, I don't mean to sound like, I, I definitely am not trying to sound like this was somehow better in the past, but that kind of thinking doesn't feel so prevalent these days. I guess that's what I would say.
1: There are people that are trying to do, to retrieve and to do that work, present that discourse that you're talking about there Brenna, I think it came through in a couple of the interviews. The notion of being able to do multiple things at once within our feminist praxis and within our anti-racist endeavours, like we can think about, we can think about solidarity building, we can think about the particularities, but the particularities don't really get us, get the goods always so i think that that is it's a clear theme without the interviews to be honest but i think that it's really powerful the way that you're able to create that it's a careful for critique and it's one that recognizes why the people that you're talking about brenna feel the way they do but equally tries to bring them with you that's something that i try and think about what i can do with my language to bring people with me and that this book is so fundamental i think for for really redressing some of these well, what sometimes seems like issues that are a distraction. I mean, I think they, are, they can be a dist- distraction, but equally we need to take people with us. So what are the things that we can do to do that?
0: Um, it's so interesting you say that because I think in the Avtar Brab uh, interview in particular, she really speaks about this question of, of political blackness, how it was forged in a very honest way, which I think sometimes it is lacking in the conversations we have right now, that's very binary like everything that was before was bad, now it's it's different, where she says that that position held at the time because of the politics of solidarity, because it was a particular experience at that particular historical moment. But then that has changed, and with it, we need to change. And there's a sentence here which sounds, it's almost like you're quoting her. She says, I think you have to be able to work with people in a way where you can facilitate the emergence of a shared common project. She's making the argument that, Although there are differences and critiques to be made of that moment and that politics, there's still, how do we still move together? For me, that's a very interesting question around like movement building. What are we trying to achieve? What are our objectives? How do we bring people along into these moments? rather than like finger-pointing about what's wrong in your politics. I'm not sure at the end of the day where it's really leading us to.
1: From what I've read in the book and from our conversations, I think we're basically on the same page on this. But do you think that there can be sometimes... People that maybe think the way we think about anti-racism or feminism that sometimes don't recognise that we have to think more, communicate what we're trying to say in a more careful way to bring those people with us. Do you think that, that there could be a better practice of that from how you've written the book, the way you ask the questions that politics comes through? And I guess I kind of get a bit frustrated by is, are some of our grandstanding on the left about what we think people should know and do. We've had a couple of organisers on the show. We've had Leila Hassenhaus, Stella Datsy, Liz Fakiti, and they spoke about this grandstanding that did tend to come from men, though not always, and how that often created some gaps, but also we lose people, lose people that we could have brought with us.
0: I guess for me, there's there's a question about honesty um, around the tensions. Um, and I think we can only work through the tensions if we are honest about them and, and mention them. And the trouble happens is when we just try to paint a beautiful picture of the past. You know, there was amazing anti-racist work that happened in the past and, and today it's crumbled. And, and one of the things, again, that I, I really admired about everyone we interviewed is they spoke about the hard work of analysis and the hard work of organizing. And they said, you know, this doesn't get done overnight. It takes quite a lot of work to bring people with you. And they all did community organizing, which meant the language you spoke, um, the, you know, the door knocking you had to do, the kinds of stories you had to tell. You had to think through all that, all that form of organizing and, and bringing people with you. The question of praxis comes through really clearly in the interviews around, you don't pretend there are no tensions. You don't pretend there are no issues, but you try to study them in the specificity of the moment. So how is class, race, gender, ability all intersecting in this particular time and, and just be honest about it and have that information presented honestly so we could organize around it. If, if we lose the honesty, then it's just all abstractions and sometimes really vulgar abstractions that aren't very helpful.
2: I wanted to sort of put an issue on the table that I think is really important, just following up on what Rafif just said, which is about disagreement and conflict. And in a lot of ways, I think that the space for genuine political and intellectual disagreement and conflict has been closed. So you often have people on the left, on the anti-racist left, let's say, who, if you dare disagree, if you dare you know engage in some kind of genuine honest disagreement with the way someone is articulating their position with the thinking behind it there is no space left for that because often you're called out as being racist or or some other awful thing and we've seen that recently play out in different contexts and i think that that only going to do our movements harm because you can't advance the thinking, you can't advance the praxis, you can't advance the organizing if you cannot disagree with one another. That is something that I think has changed a lot, it feels like in the last 15 years or 10 years even in the last decade. So I think, you know, then there's the issue of, well, then how do you deal with conflict and how do you deal with disagreement? And maybe there's an issue of trust that actually, you know, the kind of shared politics that not shared politics that one could assume. Yeah, there's maybe a a distrust or a suspicion about, you know, why one would would voice disagreement or, or what have you. So I think that's an important thing to put on the table. How do we deal with tension? How do we deal with conflict? And can we even voice it without fear of being censured? Yeah, I think that's something that I've been thinking about, because, you know, if we think about collective work, and we think about this book, we can take a really personal sort of instance, well, how did Rafif and I, you know, disagree on some things when it came to doing the book? And how did we deal with our our disagreements? You know, it's important to talk about that, you know, how how you deal with disagreements. So...
0: It wasn't just wine drinking.
2: <laughs> no, it wasn't just, I mean, this idea then that also you can only collaborate with people who you absolutely already have agreement on everything with, you know, I think is is such a, for me, such a strange fantasy and also it, it very apolitical, actually. You know, I mean, I, I enjoyed the disagreements that I had with Rafif. She taught, would teach me a lot when she was trying mm-hmm. to tell me why I was wrong about something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, this is really an important part of politics. I can have the disagreements with Rafif and we can talk about them because we trust each other. I trust Rafif. And so when she tells me I'm wrong about something, I think that means that I'm listening to her in a particular way and hopefully trying not to be too defensive.
1: <laughs> you know. Every time I speak to you about these kind of things, Brenna, I feel like you're always pushing me to think more critically about how I'm approaching both praxis and my political thinking. And yeah, this, this point on disagreement and this point on um, thinking through things in a way where we might not, come to the same conclusion while still trusting each other so we are talking about our social relations as well aren't we absolutely and and they are on the floor right now <laughs> like as said if we're thinking more sort of holistically and locally and globally our social relations are not yeah yeah necessarily Um, in a good place. I just wanted to come in on a point, Rafif, that you said that um, speaks to a broader, um, I think, point about in the book, got people that have been organising 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to now, all within the book, right? We've seen a massive change in technology through that period. And one of the things we were talking about in our pre-chat was what the practicalities of organising was like. And Rafif, you, you were talking about how that there was a lot of effort that went into organized in terms of how you had to think about your approach to people and Brenna you were talking about kind of photocopying leaflets making leaflets all that sort of thing and i wondered if we could just talk a little bit about that and um Brenna you made a really important point about what kind of our advancement in technology what's been lost what what's happened to organizing in terms of everything becoming a bit more online
2: i guess one of the things we were talking about is Is the kind of political education and consciousness raising that happens through the modality of organizing? So, if you're sitting in a room with people and you say, Okay, we really need to organize this event, Um, it's going to be some kind of a teach in or a seminar, Um, then how do you raise awareness about the event you're going to have? Well, okay, we need to stand outside for a week before the event's happening. Let's say it's on campus, on a university campus, and we need to leaflet people. And what are we going to put on the leaflet? How are we framing this event? And and who are we trying to reach? I mean, all, you know, it, the, I'm just breaking down something that I haven't thought about for a very long time, actually. But that that's that's the kind of process that you would go through just for the very basic logistics of organizing an event in the pre social media world. So think about all the conversations you're having and disagreements and then coming to an agreement, and coming to some kind of resolution around organizing events, organizing protests, etc. with you know with your comrades or with your with the people that you're you're in a in a group with, in a community with. And I think that you know, I was thinking about this recently in terms of how we get to know one another and form community and form political community. I guess, that, you know, I, w- I would want to ask you, well, so what is it like for you?
1: Definitely wouldn't count myself as one of the people that are at the heart of organising at the moment, particularly on the anti-racist left, but I certainly would consider myself as a contributor. Um, but what I would say is that I think that I don't disagree with what you're saying, Brenna, but I do think there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of that work right now that maybe aren't necessarily sort of shouting about it on social media. And I think even in the last, if we look at like what's happened in the last year, Black Lives Matter, more recently we've had Sisters Uncut sort of mobilising like a, a national movement within the UK. Like I think there are people that are doing... Lots of the work that you um, speak about in the '90s. Do I think that it it could be better, and it could take that, that there could be more inspiration taken from the interviews um, in the book from people that again that were record that have been organising for decades and decades? Yes. Do I think that social media perhaps broken down our social relations, which means we are less likely to organise with people that we disagree with? Yes.
0: Yeah, it was exactly on that point where I think, um, like coming from an organizing perspective, I think there are very particular things that you can do on social media to get the word out, to call things quickly that are that are useful. Um, where I find it less useful is on that issue that Brenna was talking about around mediating conflict, um, around having honest conversations, because the, the medium itself is so geared towards um, tension and fights and quibbles. Um, I've seen like things get out of control very easily on email lists because uh, there's no you know there's no tone there's no human contact so that's where I don't find it useful at all. Having said that, um, I went to the Sisters Uncut on online rally and massive shout out to them. It was incredible. It was so well attended. It was
1: brilliant, wasn't it? It, it
0: linked struggles together in such a honest, incredible way. I, I mean, I was feeling quite you know, down from having been in lockdown for so long and everything that was going on around Sarah Everard and just the amount of violence that was creeping up in our lives. Um, And it was so energizing to be with with comrades in one space, even though it was a virtual space. um, It it would have I know it would have been good to be out on the streets, but it was still really amazing to have that conversation and and be able to be there. Um, Another organization that I I thought it was really smart how they handled the social media thing with Dream Defenders when at one point they just took a break from social media. They said, this is not helping us. Um, It's actually just gearing us in the wrong direction. So we want to stop and think.
1: Just to interrupt you, could you just explain to the listeners which group you're talking about and what they do? Um, so Dream
0: Defenders is an incredible organization in the U.S. Um, that sort of people start to hear more about them around the Black Lives Matter movement, but they had been active before the major protests that we saw, um, working directly in black communities, raising issues around abolition and police violence. Um, they, they had also centered international solidarity within their practice um, they had traveled to Palestine um, on a solidarity trip and it was just an amazing politics that they had been building. Um, and at one point they said, you know, social media is not helping us at the moment to actually build the kind of politics and, and took a break. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way of, of thinking through it and actually saying that you can stop um, and actually test and tell what is this medium doing for our struggle? How is it? What is it giving us rather than the other way around? Because I do think it is a very addictive medium. Um, and, and, you know, there's been a lot written about this. Um, that's very interesting, I think.
1: I really wanted to talk to you both about was the kind of Marxist thread throughout the, all the interviews, which I thought was very powerful. And in particular, I really liked the way, because sometimes I, I find myself having a bit a a kind of critical friendship and love with Marxism, and I feel like that came across um, in Angela Davis's um, interview as well. She said, "If you're really engaged with the scholarship of Marxism, you're one that is critically engaged with it," which I thought was really um, powerful. And I think maybe just kind of on a kind of interpersonal level, I feel like sometimes when I've had disagreements with people that I either look up to or are in um, solidarity with on the left, that has kind of been because I'm not being Marxist enough. <laughs> Um so I think it's but it was really for for me personally it was really it was really powerful to think about some of the ways in which the revolutionary feminists had either thought about their Marxist practice, written about it, and obviously organized um around it. And I think that again, it's something that comes through in all the interviews is that having that sort of shared political praxis what is is essential. And I guess that is why Marx it comes up in with within all of the interviews. Essential to gaining and to gain in the wins we need in order to yeah become but be, create more liberation i wanted to read a, a section from gary kinsman's interview so i'm going to make sure that there's a bio of all the um, interviewees within um the episode notes so look at that and also look at our social media for more um on the different scholars um that are within the book but just to say that gary kinsman is a queer liberation anti-oppression and anti-capitalist activist in solidarity with indigenous struggles. Um, Gary's lived most of his life in Toronto and he's organised with the AIDS Activist History Project, the No Pride in Policing Coalition and the Anti-69 Network Against Mythologies of the 1969 Canadian Criminal Code Reform. That is just a tiny bit of Gary's incredible, incredible, incredible revolutionary. I'm just in awe. A section from Gary's in when and he's talking about Marxism, talking about the need for Marxism to be stretched. And I loved this. Like, I love this idea of Marxism needing to be stretched. Um, and in this way, he thinks about Marxism as needing to, as he thinks about queering Marxism. Um, and he says queering is a practice of denaturalizing the taken for granted from the diverse standpoints of queer people. Queering Marxism is like queering the family, queering the state. If you look at Marxism from the vantage point of the multiple social locations and standpoints of queer people, what does it look like? If you denormalise and denaturalise Marxism in relation to sexuality, what comes into view? Both in terms of its limitations and also its possibilities. I think it gives us a really important but also insightful way of thinking about how Marxism needs to be stretched and how it's okay to think about it in ways that are beyond Marx and Engels. I guess it would just be really good if, if either of you could talk how you feel about the way Marxism comes into the book.
0: I would start with is that everyone in the book is an, a militant anti-capitalist. That's the position to which they come through to the organizing and to the thinking, their, their, their writing and their praxis. Um, as a matter of fact, in most of the interviews, you will hear the, the, the greatest lament is how people don't talk about capitalism anymore. That some scholars can write about intersectionality and race and gender and class, but without talking about capitalism, which which is very peculiar. <laughs> um, and One
1: and- of Brenna's lies about intersectionality in the book. Brenna says in sectionality as an academic insurance policy I just thought that line was just so good as in...
0: <laughs> no no absolutely like that critique around how you can supposedly do intersectionality a term that has very much a history in anti-capitalism and not mention capitalism really comes through in the various interviews so that's that, that I would say is the starting point in the introduction um, we have a you know, a long thread around historical materialism and how the scholars use historical materialism. Now on the stretching, interestingly, not all the authors in the book come from the first, the same Marxian tradition. Um, they come from very different histories into Marxism and different organizing. Yet they there was a number of basics they could all agree on, which I, which was really refreshing in that you can have that disagreement um you know on certain historical matters or different party politics but you could still have an overall politics of of discussion and an objective towards social change that you're working towards um in terms of the stretching part I'll, i'll let brenna speak more about this but i think all of the authors have really tackled um questions around race in particular and and questions around gender in using marxism in a critical dialogue with marxism and with with a lot of tensions but to really have gotten us to new ways of thinking and new ways of thinking and a new ways of doing i think um organizing with each other that are that are very valuable and sometimes missed Uh, because people are so interested in the fight um, they sometimes don't frame it as like a friendly critique and pushing forward Um, That's why I also really like the concept of stretching, and it it comes from Fanon, actually, while he was speaking about stretching Marx to account for colonialism.
2: Well, I think that the question actually, you know, can be answered in in slightly different ways. I mean, of course, there's a traditional definition, um, historical materialism we might kind of define in quite a narrow sense of, um, you know examining, you know, the material conditions produced by um, a certain economic and political system, i.e. capitalist, capitalist social relations. So I think that, you know, that there's that quite narrow definition. But one way of thinking about how we engage Marxism And and I think Rafif is right to point out the the huge diversity in the book between people's engagements with Marxism. So, you know, you have the picking up the Fanonian idea of stretching Marxism. And then Angela Davis saying, well, actually, it's not so much about stretching Marxism as building on its critical insights. So taking its critical insights into fields of study that Marx did not, where Marx did not tread. And all of the Orthodox Marxists who followed him, you know, did not. But another way of thinking about it, we can do the academic discussion of all of these different critical feminist and anti-racist, anti-colonial engagements with Marx and Marxist traditions. But we can also just, think about it in a more straightforward way of how did you come to your marxism how did you come to your engagement with marx and i came to it through reading angela davis when i think about well what is my marxism or how do i approach marxism you know it's it's actually already through the prisms that angela davis Himani banerjee and many of the other people we interview in the book but of course many others have already elaborated you know that that's another way of thinking about well how do we engage with Marx is like well how did you come to Marx in
1: the first place (laughs) I've never thought about sort of saying it like that and when you're getting people that are within the sort of diverse tradition of Marxism saying well why aren't you thinking about this and you're saying okay well this is where I was starting from when I was thinking about Marx yeah that's really powerful
0: one of the really cool things that came across in the interview with Silvia Federici in particular was around the feminist movement um, trying to break down Marxist terminology and having study circles and, and round tables around how do you, we use these terms in ways that are accessible. Um, and and for me, that's a really big question. Um, like it's, it's dense ideas that are quite big um, and I think people sometimes just shut down. Um, and we don't, at least I haven't come across a lot of study spaces where the point is to with care, study this together rather than say you know this you don't know this
1: yeah i would say that there's definitely digital spaces that have definitely come already existed before the pandemic but i would say during the lockdown there's definitely been more engagement with thinking about Marx in a sort of in a in a rereading way together i've definitely seen a lot more of that but as we were saying before there can all there can always be more political education definitely
2: because that's such a big question how, how do you think about hist- what is historical materialism how, how do you engage with marxism i mean i think another way of getting at it if we think about the interviews in the book is to think about the connections that each, each of the interviewees make between their early experiences often their their ho- their households and their childhoods and how those experiences led them to start asking particular questions about their own early experiences and how that then sets you off on a kind of lifelong path of interrogation, of inquiry of, of research, of conversation. and so looking at that in the interviews is also a way of understanding of how people come to something like Marxism or or come to develop an anti-capitalist sensibility.
0: As long as we're talking about historical materialism, I think the point that comes through in the interviews again is the the focus on social relations and thinking about the totality of social relations, which is so important in Marx and the Marxist critique and how it's developed. But then you also see how the particular scholars, scholar activists in this book have also applied it um, in a way to understand society from the very lived experience of people racialized uh, people all the way to how that links to imperialism and colonialism and this really comes through in all of the interviews Uh, the particularity of lived experience if we're looking at social relations and how they operate to the way that links to imperialism that kind of multi-scalar linking so one of the themes i think that links the way Marx was used uh, by these authors is this question of always a focus on the concrete um, and the social relations in the concrete and formulating abstractions from um, from that concrete level. And that's as nerdy as I'm going to get for today.
1: <laughs> oh my God, you both, I'm just sat here grinning. If you're a listener to this show, you will understand why I am so excited by this conversation now, because I just think it's so generative and just so important. Sometimes our critiques of the lived experience do miss this element of why it's important for our understandings of how people come to being activists or scholar activists or thinking politically in the first place. And Brenna and rafif both of your contributions there lead me to the next point with regards to thinking about the personal as political and i'm just want to read a bit from gail lewis's interview gail lewis um i am a tremendous tremendous um fan of gail's scholarship um, gail's talking about how she came to be thinking about social relations feminism welfare post-war britain as a black girl and then a black woman and talks about that being kind of the starting point of her both political organizing but also yes scholarly trajectory as well Um, she says i decided to use myself as an example a case study but don't forget, I was very much schooled by Sivan And Ander in the politics of linking the individual to the collective. That brilliant phrase of his, making an individual slash local case into an issue, turning issues into causes and causes into movements and building in the process a new political culture. But another part of me is saying that it is also lived experience. You don't just need to present this sociologically, but also psychologically. Through one frame you could call effect, or through another we could call emotions and interiority. And think about the way that stuff gets in us and forms in part our subjectivity. Let us hold on to the ways in which this is an emotional life too. I could tell us something about that social culture thinking about the Ruth Gilmore Wilson one, but also how Lisa Lowe describes jump scales. And you were talking a little bit about this, Rafif, just then. Um, So she says... In her interview in this volume, in her activist and scholarly work, Ruth Gilmore Wilson insists on the need to jump scales in thinking and organising if we are to address these differentiated scales and spheres through which the work of social reproduction takes place. That's just a small section on thinking about jump scales. It's much more complicated than that. But I think these two themes within the book really come through thinking about our social relations how we come to politics our lived experience but also how that then needs to be applied within the scaling up of how we create liberation or transform our lives or perhaps create um, an abolitionist future i
0: I guess the main thing i would say about that is is to check out the work of the scholars um that are interviewed and particularly gail because I mean, if it she does it so beautifully and and so remarkably well, um, tying in the the very particular history, the individual lived experience, um, the emotionality of it, with also your interactions with state institutions, often a scale we don't think about, although you know our our daily dealings have have to be with state state institutions most of the time. And then when you look at others like Aftar Bra in the book, she talks about always thinking through our location as diasporic communities, linking it to the roots and routes, linking it to the histories of colonialism. And I think especially with this report coming out um, this week, um, supposedly saying that there is no racism in the UK, and saying that, I, I was joking yesterday that I went to bed in an institutionally racist country and apparently woke up in a beacon of equality without having noticed. That report actually speaks about the colonial experience, the experience of empire, and the experience of slavery in particular in such troubling ways, um, wanting to erase that history and even beautify it and make it sound good. And I think, especially if we're speaking about the anti-racist left, it's imperative on us to do that linking between the lived experience. And especially in the context of COVID, we see the differences in death rates, the experiences of poverty in this country, how it's racially differentiated, um, experiences of deportations and how that's racially differentiated. Like it's institutional racism is all around us. yet we're being told it doesn't exist. But making that link between What's happening internally at that very individual level, that violence of racism faced on every day, with the larger, the larger scale, is really important and definitely. Um, I think Ruth, Ruthie's book, uh, Golden Gulag, is like a, a brilliant methodology of how to do that upscaling uh, in a very, very solid and concrete way. So I, I guess my way of answering your question would be. I I hope more people engage with the work of the scholars that are in this book.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways, again, of approaching that question of making the connections between these different scales. And you can see the different approaches in some of the work that you two have already been discussing. So the way that Ruthie does this work in the Golden Gulag, and then the way she discusses it in the interview, to connect the experiences of marginalized communities to the municipal than to the state level, to the national, to the global. I mean, she is, she, it, it is, I mean, she is really, I mean, it's just amazing the way that she she makes these connections between these different scales. I think in Gail's work, it's less of a, a question of, of scale, right? It's more a question of really thinking about the, the, the psychic social Link right the connection between the the intimacies of the domestic family sphere and then thinking about how those are shaped by um, and and you know operating within particular social formations and then what is the relationship between those social formations and the state um, and then how does how is the state embroiled in colonial histories. And imperial warfare. I mean, you know, so again, um, you know, really brilliant work that she's done on making these kinds of links. And and then a third, you know, comment on this comes through in Himani's interview, where she talks about the issue of sexuality. You know, she's she's reflecting on on activists who have come up after her, activist scholars, and how, in her view, they made the personal particularly around issues of sexuality, sort of deeply political, I think is the phrase she uses. And she's mapping the work that's involved in, in doing that, you know, and making making the personal and, and the, the intimate, uh, making the connections between that and larger um, and, and political movements. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely vital to, to interrogate you know these various scales or the relationships between the different spheres that we
1: inhabit (laughs) thank you both so much for that because I think that obviously everyone needs to get the book but I just think that even though I've asked you both to, um, to talk to that, those tensions and how what the scholars say within the book, to, how they are dealing with that or have dealt with those tensions within their work, but also within their um, scholar activism, I'm, I'm asking the question because for the listeners to get a taste of how you deal with it in the book, I think the book exemplifies in multiple ways across multiple locations how that is possible. Like even within our highly neoliberal, mass ca- global capitalist society, it is still possible to do these, to deal with these tensions, to make those connections, to scale up.
2: Dealing with, you know, capitalism, anti-racism, etc., uh, as a series of abstractions without without connection to people's experiences really makes much sense. You know, I think I think that's why this kind of approach has been quite a core part of the work of the people interviewed in the book
0: and and i think this also reflects their organizing history as well um because if you if you look at at how they've done it it comes from that history of organizing where you are working with people you are starting from the concrete from people's conditions and thinking through well why are we in the situation we're in um and once you start to think that way, you you make the connections but i I do think it's really inflected by also not just theory and method, um which are of course relevant and important, but also that organizing experience.
1: Thank you both so much for that conversation honestly i I feel so inspired, I feel like I've got a m- another a further sense of purpose, political purpose like i feel I just feel really lucky to be able to speak to. You feminist organisers like yourself Um, and I'm really grateful that you both came on the show to share your thoughts on the book and for this and there's so many things that you've said that I think our listeners are going to really be able to learn a lot from so thank you both for coming on the show listeners I am pretty sure that there will be a discount code available for the book you need to make sure you're getting this book it is essential whether you are an academic and you're updating your reading list or you're a student or you are someone that is engaging in political education which I hope is a lot of you or you're even a young person that's just approaching and re- recognizing, interested in feminism, this is a key text. Um, In my opinion, I think it is something which we which is really going to be really important for the conversations that we have in the coming months um, and years. So yeah, thank you both so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much for engaging with the text and all your brilliant questions.
1: It was so much fun to talk to you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Chantal.
1: Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Shantel and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
0: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.